You know, last weekend, I was taking a flight in and out of Holland, which is, you know, only a really short trip. For those of you who know anything about me, the one simple fact that you may know is that I'm just not the biggest fan of flying. And in fact, you know, in the run-up and the process to getting ready to fly, I've got my, my own weird yet wonderful routine of things have to be a certain way. I have to ensure that I've got my seat booked. I have to have a window seat. I even went the, the, the full mile a while ago and I purchased these headphones that are noise-isolating earphones that have the ability to shut out and drown out every other noise around you so that now when I fly, I can't hear the bing-bong, I can't hear the noise of the engines or anything like that, and I just kind of get in my zone. Because when I'm flying, I don't want to talk to you, I don't want to look at you, I don't want any interaction with you. I have literally, it drives my wife crazy. I'm like, I put my hood up, I get my noise isolating earphones in and I just like go into the zone. I'm, I'm not interested in anything that's going on, neither am I aware of anything that's happening around me because I'm just doing what I need to do to get through that flying experience. But what was crazy was that when we landed in Schiphol Airport, there was just this guy who was another passenger on the plane that was like stood up in the aisle and he was shouting at everybody else on the plane this random statement. He was just shouting as loud as his voice would go, don't forget to flush. Now, I was kind of like, what on earth is going on? And Courtney, who was traveling with me, he just kind of looked and said, honestly, you don't want to know because this flight has been crazy. Whilst you've been in your zone, whilst you've been in complete and utter peace and tranquility, flying in silence, I've been sat next to crazy guy trying to feed him chewing gum just to shut him up. So I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry to hear that it's been a bad flight for you. And he's like, no, what you're seeing now, that is the tip of the iceberg. He said, a few moments ago before we were landing, yet when the seatbelt signs were all on, this guy spills his drink of Jack Daniels and Coke all over his lap. So it's now looking rather wet in a very conspicuous place. And because he's desperate for the toilet, he decides to stand up and announce to the plane and ask every single person on the plane to check out his crotch area so that they would not think upon his return from the bathroom that there had been any type of accident. And he was letting everybody know that there was a spillage issue before his entering into the bathroom. And some members of the flight found it a little bit funny, but you know the score. Like if you're traveling with young children, this guy's just having more and more to drink and he's really being a bit of a nuisance and he's being super loud. He's being not necessarily aggressive, but like very inconsiderate of everybody else off, off the flight. And when we come to get off the flight, it works out that he's directly in front of me and we're like first off the plane. And um, we're just about to go down the stairs. And, and as we're about to get off the aeroplane, he literally, he stops everybody from, you know, getting off as he looks at the air hostess, and this was his statement. He looks at her from the top to the bottom, and then he just goes, give me your number. <laughs> and this air hostess was just like, no, it's not happening. And he was just like, why not? And he just couldn't understand that, you know, maybe the levels of intoxication were just not working for him all that well. And it was the most disruptive flight, apparently, that Courtney had ever been on. And then we get inside the airport and um, 
he goes running through with his mates and they were chanting this saying about how we're going to get mashed in Amsterdam. I have no idea what that means. Um, but it was just like, like carnage. Like, what are you doing? Like, this is, just, this is just crazy. So anyway, I think that they had stopped off at a bathroom somewhere to do whatever and we just carried on to customs. And I walked down to customs and we've got the electronic passport, which now means you can get in and out really, really quickly, really, really easily. And I'm like first at the queue almost and I'm just about to scan my passport when this super armed guard wearing his stab vest, full gear, gun in hand comes up and approaches me and he says, sir, can you leave the line? So I'm like thinking, well, this is a bit peculiar. What's going on here? So he frog marches me to the other side of security where I'm then met by three other heavily armed customs guards who are all now standing to attention, wanting to address me, and they pull me out and they say to me, Sir, we've heard that you've been causing a serious disturbance on the plane. <laughs> I'm trying to say to the guy, like, no, honestly, I'm the guy that hasn't said a word the entire flight. I've not even spoken. And he's looking at me and he's like having none of it. And eventually I was able to try and convince him that things were not as he was thinking. And um, after about 10 minutes or so, they let me go. And I said, listen, if you're really after the bad guy, then... Just stand here and you'll hear him coming before you see him. You're going to hear him. But um, isn't it funny how life goes sometimes? Because you can be a certain way and you could think that that will equal a certain result happening in your life. But that doesn't always go that way. In that instance, you could say, because I've been silent on the flight, that it would never equal being pulled out by the customs officers. But on that occasion, it did. But in life on a whole... That's kind of not how life works. On a whole, in life, you tend to reap what you sow, right? I mean, you tend to walk in life along a particular path, and what you find is that it leads to a particular destination. Like, if you behave one way, it tends to lead towards the way that you would expect it to if you've behaved according to those patterns that you've been following. In this talk today, as we're talking about things that we can do most often, I want to talk about the idea of how we approach miracles in our life. The reason why I want to talk to you about making the most out of miracles is because the greatest miracle in your life and in mine may not be what you think. In fact, even Jesus speaks about this issue. In Matthew 7, he's having this conversation and he says this, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man. Highlight that word, wise man, who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundations on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell with a great crash. So here, Jesus is in essence talking to us about two available options. He's talking to us about two ways of life, two roads, two paths, 
that we have the choice upon which we choose to walk on. And he's very clear in stating that the destination of your life is determined by the direction of your life. In other words, where you choose and select ahead of time determines where you end up in your future time. And he divides these destinations, these two ways of life, into two categories, two words, wisdom and foolishness. Because how many of us know that pretty much everything in life can be summed up by these two words. It's either a wise thing to do or a foolish thing to do. And the older you get in life, the more easily it is for us to see this. And Jesus is saying, look, if you live life and build daily habits and daily patterns into your life that are of a certain category, it will lead to you living a certain type of life. For example... If you live life and you build habits that consist of multiple wise actions, you're going to end up living the life of a wise person. But the same is true in reverse as well. If you do foolish things often along your journey of life, then you're going to experience the type of things that foolish actions bring into your life. And in this story, he makes this description to us and he says... In life, when you're wise, it's like you're building your life on rock. He's saying wise people build habits into their life that is like you're building your entire world on bedrock, a firm, immovable foundation. So that when life happens and when the storms of life, the rains of life, the winds of life come and knock on your door, You may be shaken, but you will never be taken out. Sometimes things can happen because of your own choosing and sometimes just because of the environmental situation that we all live in. Life happens and it can easily knock you down. And Jesus was saying, if you're going to build a life, make sure you build it like the life that's intentionally choosing to be built on a foundation that is sturdy so that when everybody else's life gets stressed out and anxious ridden, your life is stable and is strong. When everybody else is affected by the financial climates and changes that maybe are happening in your company right now, it doesn't affect you because your life is built on the solid foundation of bedrock. When everybody else's marriage and family world just seems like it's collapsing all around them, well, that's not your story because you're choosing to build your life on rock. And yet, living a wise life is not the only option that's available to us because he says, alternatively, and you get to choose, you can build your life upon sand if you wish. But the only problem with sand is that it's really soft and it's movable. If you want to build a life that has any degree of height to it, then sand is not the foundation in life that you should be choosing to build your life upon. If you do it that way, what's going to happen is that the storms of life will come and not only will it make you shake, but it will take you out. It will knock you flat. When everybody else's relationship is going through turmoil, yours will be going through turmoil and you'll experience a crash. 
when everybody else's financial life is uncertain and causing great amounts of worry and anxiety and stress and concern, you experience exactly the same. And as a result, you find that your life ends up living and looking like that that has just collapsed. And the problem when you, with having a life that's maybe built in such a way that feels like you've experienced a crash or a collapse is that when your life is broken, then you need a miracle. When your life is abased and run aground, you need God's intervention like never before. At this point, you fall to your knees and you start to plead with God, beg to God, give me the miracle that I need, fix this relationship, help me in the family, help me in the workplace, but you're in need of a miracle. And Jesus kind of describes it like that. There are two options. You can build your life on rock or you can build your life on stand. But the, on sand, but the foolish way of life is just so easily shaken. In fact, it's not always the, the storms of life that can knock your life over when you build on sand, but even the mere showers of life can cause the greatest of dramas, even the lightest of winds blowing. For everybody else that's chosen to build on rock, well, they're solid and they're stable and they're not shaken. But when you build on sand, it can take you out. But what's clear from the story is Jesus kind of points it down to two things. He says, look, however you want your life to be is down to you. And it's a choice that you have to make. Do you want to build your life on a foundation that is similar to that of rock? Because if you do, all you've got to do is follow his teachings. Or do you want to choose a way of life that looks more like building on sand because you can have that as well. But the problem is you get it automatically by simply not following Christ's teachings. But the issue is it can just knock you for six. It can blindside you, take you out when you least expect it. And the problem, I think, with living and building your life upon the sand is that you're always in need of a miracle. Like you're always in need of God breaking through. You know, like I'm just believing for God to do this in my life. Again, the same thing that you were believing God to fix and change just two weeks ago, two months ago. Oh, I'm just believing for a miracle. Oh, I thought you were believing for that last year. Yes, yeah, same thing again. It's like, no, no, Jesus was saying if you end up doing it that way, it's because you choose for it to be that way. In the Gospels, this is fascinating to me. What you find is that the accounts of Jesus show him moving from town to town with all of his disciples, those that were sincerely committed to following him. And what's really evident is that as Christ moved from town to town, he would very often be found in these moments where a miracle was needed. Someone would need to be healed. The blind would request their sight to be returned to them. The sick would want to be made well again. You know, everybody that approached Jesus seemed to be asking for these miracles. And yet what's fascinating is that in the gospel accounts, there are 37 miracles recorded that Jesus was involved in. In fact, only really 36 when you consider the ministry period that was approximately three years of Jesus' public ministry life 
And the first miracle was actually taking place when he was just a young boy and was out at a wedding with his family and then crisis happened. The wine ran out. So of course, what do we do? We get young Jesus on the case and we're like, hey, here's the problem. We've got water, but we want Chateau Neuf de Pape. So like, can you do something right now? So we're going to discount that miracle because it didn't happen within his open and public ministry season of his life. And what we're kind of left with is 36 miracles that happened over a period of time of approximately three years, which is 36 months. Which when you start to break the numbers down, what you see and find is that Jesus didn't do miracles very often. If you were to try and break them down and average them out, he was found conducting miracles on average once a month. Now, here's a few things I've got to go on record and say. Firstly, all the miracles in the Gospels are not the only miracles that Jesus and his disciples conducted. In fact, Scripture even points to there being more conducted by Jesus that maybe we would not even be able to number. But if we only just work off what we know right now as those accounts contained within the Gospels to be correct, what we see is there were 36 miracles over 36 months. And I think that that whilst I totally understand how we, how the crowd, how the disciples love the miraculous moments of life, how I can see and understand how it's so much more appealing to believe for the incredibly supernatural, I want you to know that that isn't what Jesus did most often. Now, let me just make a few statements because if you walk out of church today and misunderstand my heart, then there's going to be a great chasm between us, and I don't want that. I believe 100% in what the Bible teaches us. I believe 100% that when Jesus walked the planet, that he conducted miracles. I believe that he rescued lives that were at the point of breaking back then, and I believe that he can still do that today. I believe that Jesus did intervene back then in the middle of people's crises, and I believe that with the power of the Holy Spirit that exactly the same can happen again today. But my point is this, it is not what happened most often, and neither did he ever teach his disciples a way of life that consisted of a reliance upon waiting for God to do a miracle. Scripture doesn't actually show that or teach that at all. And I think that it's because Jesus knew that the requirement for a miracle meant that a life was in crisis. Jesus knew that if a life was in need of a miracle, it meant the life was already collapsed and broken at the point of breaking point. Jesus knew this. And this is where the challenge is for us, because I get it. Sometimes it's so easy for us to be drawn towards the supernatural things of God. But what if the greatest of miracles that Jesus was to do in your life didn't even look that supernatural at all? In fact, what if it was so obvious and happened so often that you didn't even realise that it was taking place at all? Let me describe it to you like this. When I was younger, I grew up in a church with people that absolutely, I'm convinced of this, they loved the Lord. They followed God with all of their hearts. But one of the things that I knew and experienced as a younger Christian is that when it came to building church, we would always have late night prayer meetings, often. 
And we would pray and ask God to do the supernatural often. And we would pray and we would ask that he would just wake the people up on a Sunday morning and he would cause them to start queuing around the corner to get into the church. We would pray that revival, whatever that means, would happen. We would pray and ask God to do the supernatural things. And now looking back, understanding what is most helpful for each and every one of us in our fellowship of Christ, it makes me go, you know what? I think more than asking and demanding that God do the miraculous and cause people to wake up early and just miraculously start queuing at the doors of the church, I'm going to take care and take responsibility of everything that's already in my hand. So I'm going to make sure that we are a welcoming church. I'm going to make sure that we have fantastic children's ministry. I'm going to make sure that when we speak and when we talk, we do it in a way that hopefully makes it easy for you to connect with our language and that it doesn't come across in such a way that sounds so airy-fairy and out there that your friends and your family and your colleagues could never come into church and experience the same sense of freedom that you found from following Christ. My point is, is that we were just so laden with this idea of like, this is just all on God. Like God has to do the miraculous for anything to work and yet I look now and think actually God's given us the ability to be smart and intelligent and to try and cultivate an environment that makes it easy for people to follow God because maybe in our churches we need a different type of miracle. What if the greatest of miracles that I want to encourage us all to follow and to lean into God for and to trust him for all the more What if it's not dependent on there being a crisis? Like, what if the type of miracle that I want to talk to you about today is not that exciting? What about the type of miracle that is not all that desperate, that will never, ever make a movie, that nobody's ever going to travel the world talking about because it's never going to make God TV, it's never going to be brought up in lights and smoke because it's just kind of under the radar? But what if the greatest miracle that Jesus can bring into your life is the type of miracle that you don't have to be tossed around by the storms and the rains and the winds of life? I mean, what if the greatest of miracles that Jesus can bring to your life is the type of miracle that works all the time, even in the absence of a crisis? What if it's about the times when the storms of life come, but you're not affected because you've built your life on rock? Is that not the greatest miracle that Jesus is talking to us about being available to us? What about the type of miracle that when the financial climate changes and everybody else goes into panic mode and worry stations, you are firmly fixed and centered on the idea that everything is going to be okay because you've built your life on the rock because you follow Christ's teachings and you don't need a crisis miracle. What about the type of miracle when all the other business sectors are affected and nobody else is winning the contract? Your business area is completely unaffected and you're still signing deals. What about the type of miracle that when everybody else is experiencing collapse and breakdown and at the point of just feeling like, I quit, I'm out, I can't do this anymore, You're just centered and at peace and everything's going to be okay and you're aware of that because you've just got this idea that as you walk in life, 
taking daily steps that are just wise, then it's going to mean that you end up living in a wiser place in life. But I know that this is not an attractive way to do life. Because building on rock takes time. Building a deep and digging a deep foundation, it takes time. A number of years ago, I was working in the police and I got seconded to a project that was all to do with this thing called fracking. I I know it's a a highly emotive topic um, in certain parts of the UK. And I ended up having to spend a number of time with a company that was called Quadrilla. And I had to familiarize myself with the way in which a fracking rig would work. One of the most fascinating things that I learned about this fracking rig was how the deeper these drills, and they are just giant pieces of machinery, the deeper they dig further down into the ground, the slower that they can actually dig the rock, because the harder the bedrock becomes. And they have these three um, like diamond-tipped drill bits that work in this manner that just chews and eats away at the rock. And every single time that this drill bit would need replacing, which was every couple of days, it would cost their company £180,000 just to swap out the tip of the drill bit, not even the main body of the drill bit. You see, I learned that when you're trying to dig into rock, not only does it take you a long period of time, but it can also cost you. It's expensive to build that type of life. And that can be frustrating because when you try and build a life that's built upon rock as opposed to sand, it'll often feel to you like everybody else is living life and having all the fun. Like whilst you're making wise decisions and everybody else is making unwise decisions and you're there saving for your financial future and everybody else is out there in the club and they always manage to buy more Moe champagne than everybody else, it just feels like they're having all the fun and you're not. I mean, whilst you're saving for your first house or you're trying to buy a new sofa and you want to pay cash because you don't want to pay for it on finance because everybody knows when you pay for something up front, it costs you less than if you pay for it later with interest. It just feels to you like everybody else is having all the fun. But in the words of a pastor friend of mine called Jeffrey Rashmat from Indonesia, he says about that situation, don't worry, You'll catch them up later. And I think he's absolutely true because choosing to build on rock, it may take you longer, but it will work out for you better in the end because you've got to understand something. Most miracles come out of a place of lack. Well, Jesus doesn't want you to live in a place of lack. Most miracles come out of a crisis point a breaking point. Well, that's not the plan that he has for your life. So here are just a couple of questions I have for you. Like, wouldn't your life just look a little bit better if instead of having to fall to your knees when you reach crisis point financially at the end of the month, every month, because you can't pay a bill or you can't do this and you can't do that, wouldn't your life just be easier, arguably better, if you just had maybe one month's or a couple of months' salary that's just stashed aside in a savings account that you only ever used for an emergency fund. Now, I know that to some right now, that sounds like a crazy idea. But for those of you who think that that's a crazy idea, 
that is exactly what building your life on the rock looks like. And for those of you that have got that, you know. You know that there is less stress in your life when things are more financially secure. You argue less with your wife. You're more grounded as a parent because you know the money is going to add up. And it's just a choice. It just might mean in order to get there, you have to go without for a season or a period of time. Wouldn't your life be easier if you were to learn now everything that you were going to need if the financial climate were to change in your business sector or your company environment? I mean, wouldn't that just relieve so much more stress later on if you were to put in the hard miles now? Now, granted, that would probably look like you staying awake a lot more of a night time looking and researching on Google, reading some books, trying to get around some more people. But when you do that, you're building your life on the rock. You see, you're not leaving your life down to chance or external circumstances. You're wanting to do the wise thing. Wouldn't your life just be easier if rather than waiting for the time that you're told that you need some kind of intervention surgery, that you choose to just live life better now and lose the weight earlier before you're told you have to lose the weight. I mean, wouldn't that be better than later crying out to God for a crisis miracle and begging him that the surgery goes well because your life has collapsed and crashed now? Wouldn't it be easier to just put in the hard miles now? And I'm not against believing for the miraculous. I'm just saying, I don't think that that's the pattern that Jesus taught his disciples to follow. In fact, when you look at what he taught them, you see that he taught them to build in daily habits that were healthy to them. So, how do you build your life upon the rock? Three really quick things, and there are like 10 that I could give you off the top of my head, but let's just go with perhaps the three most significant things that will help us all determine and choose today to build our life on the rock rather than building upon the sand. So number one, everything in life, it all starts with Jesus. If you follow Christ, you've got to do the same thing and apply the same thing to your life as Paul, who wrote the book of Colossians, wrote when he said, everything got started in him and finds its purpose in him. In other words, For me, it doesn't matter what venture you're going to start. It doesn't matter what environment in life that may be new to you that you're about to walk into. But in every season and on every step of the journey of your life, always ensure that you put Jesus first. You know what? You can wake up in the morning and you can say, Lord, are we having Cocoa Pops today or is it going to be shredded wheat? You help me figure this one out. Lord, do I invest in that particular business or do I invest in this business? God, do I apply for that job? Is it the right season right now or do I not apply for the job? Should I ask him out on a date? Should I try and date her? Would we be a good fit? In other words, build the daily habit into your life of understanding that everything starts with Jesus. Number two, get wise counsel. Proverbs 12, 15 says, the way of fools seem right to them, but the wise listen to advice. Have you ever noticed how easy it is to get so carried away with the brilliance of your own advice that you can give you to your own life? Have you ever realized like, and why is it so easy for you to see a train wreck coming in someone else's life and yet you can't see it in your own? Have you ever noticed how you can see that that's gonna end in disaster for them, but they can't see it? Well, that's because they've got the same thing going on that you've got in your life. 
something called blind spots. And you can never see your own blind spots. And yet, when you choose to just get wise counsel, you'll find that there'll be people speaking into your world saying, hey, listen, if I were you, I probably wouldn't go for that job right now. I mean, it's going to take you away from town six nights a week and your children are really young and your wife's going to need you. Maybe it's best if you delay that for five years. It's a blind spot to you, but somebody else that is a trusted follower of Christ can really help you negotiate your way through. And when you invite their counsel in, you're building on the rock. It can take a little longer. It can cost a little more, but much better that than building on the sand and ending up in a crash. In fact, that's why we do life groups. Because we believe with all of our heart that if we just do community together, we do it better when we choose not to do it alone. Just get yourself involved and connected in a life group. And then the third and final thing, if you want to try and build and shape your life so you're building on the rock as opposed to the sand, then build healthy habits. Luke 5, 16. Jesus says this, but Jesus, in fact, he's talking about Jesus and what he did. It says, but Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and he prayed. Notice that what the scriptures teach us and tell us that Jesus did often is not what we think he did often. What we think he did often was heal the sick, heal the blind, restore broken lives, but scripture doesn't show that anywhere. It tells us that what he did often was go away to a quiet place and spend some time in prayer to the Father. You see, Jesus didn't often conduct miracles, neither did he train his disciples to be dependent upon them, but he did teach them to often withdraw to a quiet place in order to get one-to-one time with the Father. And I say all of that to say, I think even Jesus knew that if you wanna live a life that's gonna be of any benefit to anybody else around you, it starts by you being healthy first. If you wanna be of great benefit to the company, then it starts when you choose to get healthy first. And I think that in essence, what Jesus was saying through this parable that he teaches is he was saying, look, if your life breaks and feels like it's in ruin and it's collapsed, I think he's there and his ears are open and his heart is open. And in a moment, we're gonna pray for your life because it's important that we believe that God can still do the miraculous today in the same way that he did 2000 years ago. But I think that what Jesus was kind of saying is, look, okay, if you need a miracle now, if that's how your life looks right now, that's okay. And we can fix that, right? But the plan is that you don't stay building on the sand and then just waiting for the next crash to come. Jesus was saying, no, no, look, we can work with the crisis miracle and we can pray for breakthrough for your company and your marriage and what's going on with your children. But the idea is that you choose to build a daily habit of doing wise things most often. And when you do, even though the history and past of your life may have shown a consistent pattern of crashes and breakdown and collapse and chaos, you can also build and live your life on the rock that consists now of the miracle of escape and protection from the storm and shelter from the rain. Because when you follow Jesus and do what He says, your life becomes like that of the man that's chosen to build upon the rock. It's not the miracle that is most celebrated, neither does it get us excited, but it's the miracle of prevention from the crash. 
It's the miracle of avoidance from the pain and the strain. It's the miracle of the covering from the rain that God affords to your life. It's the miracle of shelter from the storm. So I'm encouraging us as a church to not live life miracle focused when it means and shows that we keep crashing, but rather to build healthy habits and determine that we're going to build our lives upon the rock. And that happens when we simply do what Jesus says. Church, let's stand to our feet. We're going to pray. Oh.